It's December 23rd, 2019, and welcome to another episode of Thinking Through Autonomy. We're here with Luke Fox, founder and CEO of White Fox Defense, and they're an aerospace security company focused on counter UAS solutions. We'll be talking about how truly autonomous UAS systems impact counter UAS solutions, the threat from rogue drones and careless operators, and how to stop them. Stay tuned to hear about Luke's amazing personal journey that has taken him to the top of the industry. Sure, he's a drone guru, but that's only half of his story. Welcome to Thinking Through Autonomy, a podcast to help you understand the promise and impact of autonomous land and air vehicles in our world. I'm Ken Dunlap, managing partner of Catalyst Go, taking you on this journey. Hear and read more at thinkingthroughautonomy.com. Now it's time to take your hands off the wheel, foot off the pedal, hand off that throttle, and let's go. Luke, it's great to have you on Thinking Through Autonomy. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Ken. So 2019 has been this incredibly big year for you and White Fox Defense. You raised $26 million. You closed your Series A round of funding. You have two technology innovation awards from AUVSI that were awarded at Exponential, and you are named to the Forbes Top 30 Under 30. Are you going to beat that next year or what? <laughs> we, we certainly will. We have, uh, we have big plans for next year and really ensuring that our technology and uh, our solutions are in the hands of everyone who needs them around the world. Yet, though, Luke, the audience, I think, really needs to understand that you are just so much more than a drone guru. <laughs> and in fact, you are professionally trained as a human trafficking investigator. And in 2017, you were awarded the Isabel Ruiz Humanitarian Award for your work in combating homelessness and promoting better foster youth services in San Luis Obispo County. Tell me about that personal journey. How did that start? And how did you get that commitment to community service? Yeah, well, you know, it's really everything... That I've done in my life, and it sometimes can seem a little, it really is woven together uh, in that going back all the way to my childhood, I was, uh, I was in the foster care system and uh, grew up in a wide variety of uh, different environments and just really saw what, uh, what humanity is capable of and both the, some of the dark side, but also uh, the, the beauty and what it means when somebody believes in you and can really help uh, give you an opportunity to find success for yourself. And there was uh, some really special people in my life growing up that did that for me. And I knew that as soon as I could, I wanted to do that for others. That is just really profoundly wonderful to hear. Let's maybe transition a little bit from that background and your interest in drones. What did that transition look like? What were the influences on you growing up where you wind up saying, I want to start this company that builds drones. I want to get <laughs> involved in counter UAS. How did that work for you? Yeah, so for me growing up, I, I always loved technology. I love breaking things apart, putting them back together, making new things out of, out of broken things. I just always loved that. But, and what I knew from a from a young age and what I loved about technology was the just incredible power and potential it had and for me I I love technology and but as I grew older I started to see how technology was being used for 
for bad things and how, uh, how people were using technology to hurt people. And that always stuck with me as a child and uh, it got me interested in cyber forensics and cyber crime and how we could use technology to combat people who are using technology for bad. And as that, as that progressed, I, uh, and growing up, I, that's, then I started the nonprofit and started working in uh, human trafficking and using technology to help combat human trafficking. And from there, that's when the realization came that uh, this amazing technology that uh, one of my friends was using, drones, uh, that they were starting to use, this incredible technology, had uh, a m- massive potential to help like humanitarian aid and, and nonprofits. So started to incorporate that technology, and that's when, really where I fell in love with drones. And uh, from there, we started, uh, started tinkering with them and started to realize that the massive potential of drones could really be unlocked when you can make them affordable. So that's where I set on my journey to make drones high performance, highly affordable. And that's where I started my first company there, Drones for Change. So you got involved with the drone industry right at the the intersection of two trends. First, that the technology became cheap and affordable. And second, unfortunately, the drone industry in the United States really couldn't match or keep up with what we were seeing coming out of other countries. Can you kind of tell me what the playing field looked like for you as you're building high-performance drones and as this remarkable industry is changing, you know, literally on a a weekly, if not monthly basis? Yeah, so this was uh, about 2012, uh, 2012, 2013, and so DJI was not not by far not a household name and they were just starting and uh, just releasing their uh, the first products that were really gaining mainstream attention uh, so it was a very different climate in terms of uh, drone manufacturing uh, there was a lot of specialty drones that were being uh, that were being built uh, so it was different drones for very specific use cases and a lot of it uh, the m- more mature and high performance drones were downscaled uh, military type aircraft that were being uh, repurposed for commercial purposes. Luke, if we look forward to 2019 and, and even pull the crystal ball out for 2020, we know that there is a lot of incentive coming from Washington to re-energize what they call the domestic drone industrial base. Do you think that's possible? And, and what do you think are the keys that need to be put in place for there to really be a robust domestic drone industry. Yeah, you know, I think that as as we look back, if if you go back to the 2012-2013 era, uh, the really interesting thing that we saw was there was that compartmentalization and the specialization of different drone platforms and sensors. As we have progressed, we have seen a number of drone manufacturers that have developed generalized drone platforms that are highly capable. And if you, if you look back the last 18 months, I think we're seeing a trend towards going back towards specialization. Now that we've kind of capped out what we, can, uh, what we have on the generalized drone that's just truly an incredible platform, more specialized for specific purposes in agriculture, search and rescue, firefighting. And I think that's really where the U.S. market is going to specialize, is developing these very specific use case drones in markets that can afford to pay more than the average consumer. I don't really see 
there being any intrinsic value in having a robust hobbyist manufacturing network within the U.S. because it's just it's difficult to compete with uh, with foreign manufacturers in that way. But we can really focus in on those specialized sales. I think that's where we've already seen it naturally happen, and we're going to continue to see that. As I noted at the opening of this show, you're the CEO of White Fox Defense Technologies. And I'm wondering, if I was to follow you around on a typical day, and I know that there's probably no such thing as a typical day, <laughs> what, what does your life look like? <laughs> well, it starts early and ends late. <laughs> It's <laughs> as as this podcast shows, by the way, folks, yes. <laughs> we're early morning. Exactly. And so as uh, you know, my, my focus, I'm very, very fortunate to have an incredible team within White Fox. We have about 65 full time employees and uh, everyone has very specific uh, focus within the company to really drive the company forward. I'm very fortunate then to focus on big picture, vision, uh, the vision of the company, ensuring that we're executing against that vision, ensuring that all of our products line up to not just uh, providing a product that somebody buys, but truly a solution set that benefits not only them, but helps us to accomplish ultimately what the company is built to accomplish. Luke, I have a question that I'm pretty fond of when I'm talking to the CEO and founder of one of these really exciting technology companies, and it's this. On the, the day that you started White Fox Defense Technologies and you looked around in the room, how many people were there and what was the mood? Were they smiling? Were they happy? Were they scared about what they were about to jump into? What did the room look like? <laughs> yeah, so... It, <laughs> Well, it, it was just me. So, so small crowd. Small crowd. And it was this realization when we had this, uh, this drone manufacturing company where I realized I, I can't continue this. I cannot, I cannot continue to make drones when I don't know how they're going to be used and when there's some clear evidence that some of these users want to use them for nefarious things. And that to me was heartbreaking, not only because uh, these my babies that I'm creating to be used for bad, but also I knew that that it would just take one major incident with a drone, and it would just destroy the uh, the commercial drone industry to which I love so dearly. Which is what spurred me to start White Fox Defense to create a solution set that allows people to trust drones and to know that drones are flying safely and securely. As you're looking at your business plan back then on day one. Did you really think that the amount of success that you were going to have that came so quickly was possible? I, I mean, look, I know you're a highly driven and motivated person, but your success, I think, has just set a new benchmark for the industry. And I'm wondering, you know, back again on, on day one, <laughs> what was your plan for what you wanted to accomplish? Yeah, it's, it's funny because looking back, looking back, even though, we have accomplished, there's a lot more that we need to accomplish and we are far, far from done. But looking back and just seeing where we are today, I was, I think, gosh, Luke back then was stupid enough and naive enough to believe that this was possible. And only by believing and being stupid enough to believe it's possible, now are we are where we are today. Well, it's, it's remarkable. Let, Luke, let, let's talk about your main business, which is counter UAS. And, and I want to 
Start with some foundational questions because yeah. maybe not everybody in our audience is as familiar as you and I are with Counter UAS. So I, I want to start with a basic question. And mm -hmm. automation is out there. It's every place we're looking now. We've got driverless cars. We've got driverless trucks on the horizon. We've got autonomous delivery vehicles. They run up and down the streets of my city where I'm at. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, why does the threat from what we call drones or UAS take up so much air in the room. Why, why is the news stories we see focused on drones and not focused on some other type of autonomous vehicle that we can encounter daily these days? It's, it's a great question. And many people have different opinions on this. And really what's core to White Fox is, is my theory on this. Our theory is that it all comes down to accountability. The key difference between drones and any other autonomous technology that currently is mainstream available is that it, we have this innate sense as humans that they lack accountability, which means, you know, you look outside a window and you see a driverless car that says Waymo on the side of it, go down the street. Okay, you know if that car does something bad, you know who to complain to. Uh, you know that even if it doesn't say anything on it, you know you can call the police and they can do something about it. The thing with drones is you look outside the window and it doesn't matter who you are. If you're Joe Schmo looking outside your bedroom window or if even you're the president of the United States in, uh, in, at the, in, down in Florida playing golf, right? And you see a drone, the same is true practically across the board is you have no idea who that drone is, who's flying that drone, what the intention of that drone is, and that anonymity, not knowing who's behind it, but also not knowing what they intend to do with it. And then on top of that, knowing that there's not a lot immediately available for you to do. For example, we have uh, people who've joined the companies, uh, joined White Fox after they had a drone that was uh, flying over their, their, uh, their little daughter. Day after day, they called the police and the police said they can do nothing about it. And it was that that's what spurred them to say there has to be a better way. There has to be a way to do this because at the end of the day, that drone that's flying outside your window might be doing an inspection of the apartment building to ensure that the apartment can st is uh, structurally sound. There's hundreds of reasons that drone could be benefiting society. And yet, because it lacks accountability, we feel afraid. And until there's a mechanism to provide accountability where people can know there's transparency to who's operating, knowing that something is authorized to operate, and finally knowing that there's something that could be done if, some, if somebody's misbehaving, we will not really see the true benefit of drones in our society, and they'll continue to remain largely as toys. Luke, it sounds like if you put the drone within the proper context, you can take care of 99% of the problems that we're seeing today. Is that a vehicle inspection? Is that a hobbyist? But you and I both know that there's the other one-tenth of one millionth of one percent, and that's a yes. threat that's posed by either what we call rogue drones or careless mm -hmm. and clueless operators. Yep. And I'm wondering, can you take us down the road of putting our arms around what does that type of threat look like? Why should we call it a threat? And who, you know, are these people? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. So there's four types of drone operators that we like to, uh, and when you look at it, when you try to do a statistical analysis on this, there's the compliant, the clueless, the careless, and the criminal. 
So the compliant is somebody who always flies by the rules. They always they have their drone registered. They never fly within, uh, too close to an airport or infrastructure or helipad. They never fly above the altitude. Now, the compliant category is unfortunately one of the smallest because it's too easy. Unfortunately, it's too easy because drones are really powerful to fly them beyond visual line of sight so that you no longer can see them, to fly them too close to infrastructure, to fly them too high. Now, there's many, there's many amazing drone pilots out there who we love and support and who even work for, uh, for White Fox who are flying compliantly. And what we want to do is increase that category and continue to highlight that there's a lot of people who want to do right. Very unfortunately, there's the clueless, the careless, and the criminal that also exists. And the bit that highlight is the criminal, the criminal operator who's malicious, who's doing bad, who's intentionally trying to, uh, breaking the law. But that's a very, very small percentage of drone operators. Unfortunately, many drone operators statistically fall into the clueless and the careless category. So clueless is they don't understand the rules and they are accidentally breaking them. They don't have malicious intent. The careless category are those who know the rules but know that there's nothing anybody can do to stop them. And so that's somebody that's flying, for example, uh, like at Stonehenge. People know that you're obviously not supposed to fly there, but they fly, and there's big signs that say don't fly here, but they fly there every single day, or a wildfire. And this is perhaps the most dangerous category, the clueless and the careless, because this is from a risk standpoint, you know, risk is harm multiplied by probability. Well, the criminal bad actor is very, very low probability. A lot of harm, but low probability. The clueless and the careless are the is the biggest risk in that you take a wildfire for example people generally know either common sense so they're clueless or on the careless side they know legally they're not supposed to fly over the wildfire but they think what's the harm i'm going to do it nobody's going to know well each time that happens it causes millions of dollars of risk and actual costs to property loss to uh, homes being lost as drones are flying over that wildfire just trying to get a peek of it preventing the w firefighters from being able to operate there that's just one small example but then you look at an airport and a drone flying near an airport well that's another example casually flying near the airport not crashing into an airplane they the drone pilot thinks they're doing a good job but then the airport sees that and has to shut down and land flights, which causes, again, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars of damages to that airport now having to be shut down because there was a suspected drone at some point seen in the airspace. Well, there is a drone operator in Las Vegas right now that has a $20,000 fine that he's fighting, yes. which, you know, certainly is one example of enforcement. But we've also seen, speaking of airports, incidents at Heathrow and Gatwick and Newark within the last several months. If we look at your framework and those incidents, what is that telling us about the current state of response and how authorities and you and I in the world handle drones? <laughs> you know, it's, it's actually really interesting. So when we look at the response, uh, especially at airports, uh, the, co the common... Uh, operating plan is if you see a drone somebody reports a drone at the uh, flying within the vicinity of the airport we need to shut down the airport or at least shut down that runway which causes delays and causes uh, further issues and the the 
really interesting thing is is that from the data that White Fox is collecting around airports and the, what we're doing from a monitoring's perspective is that drones are flying near airports and even over the runways every single day at airports around the world. They just We just simply don't know about it. The airport doesn't realize that it's happening. So this overreaction of having to shut down the, shut down the airport as soon as somebody suspects they see a drone flying within two miles or five miles of the airport is really an overreaction. At the same time, the drone being in the airspace does present a risk. And so what we need to do is moderate the response based off of real data, off of tracking the drone, knowing where the drone is, knowing if it's actually flying too close or if it's just simply flying within the vicinity, and then making data-based decisions off of that rather than this knee-jerk reaction that there's a drone nearby we need to shut down the airport until we know and, and wait 45 minutes. Well, the drone might have only been there for five seconds, or it might not even been a drone. In many cases, it's maybe a bird. And that's where, again, the data-based approach is so critical. As you and I walked across the floor of Exponential this past year, and mm-hmm. even in other years, we've seen kinetic systems. We've seen jamming systems. They haven't brought the Falcons yet to the Exponential trade show floor. <laughs> But it seems as if there is a proliferation of counter UAS systems. Can you kind of work through, maybe from best to worst or or, or whatever framework you want to use, those counter UAS solutions that are out there and maybe where they fit and where they don't fit? Yeah, it's a a great question. So counter UAS is 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 something where people want a quick solution. And the reality is there isn't. You can look at uh, drones as uh, the way I like to look at them uh, and the way to defend against them is similar to how you protect a network. So if you have a network, you deploy cybersecurity. You have a firewall, you have preventative mechanisms to prevent bad things from happening and intruding in your network. Uh, The key thing here is really recognizing that it's not about stopping all drones, just like your solution to cybersecurity at your office is not to unplug the internet. It's about letting the good through and being able to identify and then stop the bad and to do so without disrupting the good. And so as we look at counter drone technology, while there is no silver bullet, there's no magical solution to solve all drone problems conceivable because drones vary widely. The key thing here is to recognize what is the risk? What are you trying to stop? What are you trying to prevent? Are you trying to prevent a terrorist attack? Or is it most likely that you're trying to stop a clueless and careless operator. And therefore, you're going to use a different type of counter UAS solution or a different layering of those. So as we look broadly, there's two types of counter drone systems, those that detect and identify and those that mitigate. Now, it's important because when we talk about counter UAS, it's often we're focusing on the mitigation, right? The, uh, like you said, the, the falcons and the jammers and the nets. But first, you have to detect and identify it. Now, you can do that visually with your eyes, but there's been many, many uh, testing of this to show that visual or that human looking or listening for a drone, they're really, really bad at seeing drones. <laughs> so you usually have to have some type of electronic mechanism to detect and identify. So you could use RF, you could use radar, you can use cameras, and you can go into the details of those if you'd like. And then on the mitigation side, the other side, which is now responding to the drone, there's kinetic and non-kinetic. And so kinetic is, again, those falcons, those nets, those shooting something at it physically. 
non-kinetic is uh, we're going to stop the drone electronically. So either through jamming, which is barrage jamming, taking everything, all the wireless communications out, bad drones, good drones, cell phones, pacemakers, everything. Which would be bad, the the pacemakers, yes. Yes, especially as a first line of defense. (laughs) Exactly. And then finally, you have non-jamming solutions, which are like jamming, or excuse me, uh, non-jamming, like spoofing, uh, where it's more surgical and targeted to the individual drone uh, or set of drones, telling them to land or to be rerouted. And so depending on the threat, you need to have an appropriate layering of solutions. In often cases, uh, many of our clients... Uh, for example, they have just one layer. That's us. But in some cases, they want to have a kinetic system. In one case, a, they have a missile, a ground, a surface-to-air missile system. So as a final line of defense, you shoot that at it. But you want to minimize the amount of $210,000 missiles that you're shooting as much as possible. <laughs> I can get that. I can get that. <laughs> but look, let, let me ask you this, though. One of the things that I'm wondering if you have seen in, you know, not only dealing with your clients, but prospective clients and people across the industry, is whether or not you think critical infrastructure owners and operators actually understand their infrastructure well enough to know what they're trying to defend. Because I think conceivably we all can understand, yeah, there's could be a threat from a drone, but unless I know what I'm supposed to protect, I don't know what system to roll out. So how does that fundamental foundational question of what are you trying mm. to protect fit into your engagements with your clients? Yeah, it's fascinating. So uh, if you look at a, the recent report from, I'll just say, a government agency that looked at uh, the nuclear industry within the United States, they concluded that drones were not a threat, high level. Now, the really interesting thing is when you look at the report, they were solely focused on drones being a threat for uh, around the nuclear material and caught and then also causing damage to the physical structure at the nuclear power plant so it's easy to say oh well simply drones aren't a threat they say that they're not a threat but when you really look at it the biggest concern from our clients within the nuclear space is not that somebody's going to take a drone that they get out at a department store and crash it into the the building and somehow think that's going to explode because most of those buildings are able to withstand airplanes flying at them so it's not that that's not the risk but uh when you look they're concerned about drones and as we and we've seen this with clients where drones are being used and watching the security guards are looking into the office windows these are secluded places, buildings where there shouldn't be anybody casually flying a drone, and yet they see a drone flying and hovering outside the window looking in or watching the people get out of their cars. Now, this is an example of their concern, not from the drone stealing nuclear material or crashing into the building, but simply gathering data and intelligence, intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, ISR, because drone platforms allow us to take what previously you had had millions of dollars of state-sponsored equipment infrastructure to build these drones that can fly thousands of feet in the air and collect this data, or to have a satellite trained in on a, uh, a particular site. Now, you just need a few hundred dollars and somebody with two thumbs to fly, collect 4K video inside a building, watching what's happening, who's on guard, what those guard shifts are, and they might not even see you. One of the things we haven't spoken about yet 
are crowdsourced counter UAS solutions. So you've probably seen the apps that you can put on your phone that can help someone identify the drone after you take a picture of it, collect um, information for law enforcement so that they can do a forensic investigation, and you know just basically say, hey, we saw a drone and it's taking off here. What role do you think crowdsource does or does not play in this, or have we already moved beyond a crowdsource solution for some of the, I'll, I'll call it threat vectors that are out there with drones? Yeah, you know, crowdsource solutions are always always a good solution. It's uh, admittedly though it's not a complete solution, in that it does what it does do is it allows people to feel like they're doing something they that they are help that they're recording this, they're documenting it more than just saying I saw a drone. The problem with thinking that that's an, that's enough is that it really doesn't tell you the intention of the drone. It doesn't tell you who's flying it. It doesn't allow you to see where else that drone launches from next. And it doesn't even tell you if the drone is authorized, right? So as you report it, people take a picture of the drone. They say it's this type of drone. They notify law enforcement. It does provide the evidence to show that drone was flying in the air, but it doesn't show that it was that drone. And this is where law enforcement has run into issues with it because somebody could say, well, yeah, there's a lot of these white drones or black drones out there, but can you prove it was my drone? So that's one of the key, the key problems with it in terms of actually being effective uh, for what you would hope that it would it would be effective for. Luke, if I'm a potential client and I think, hey, I've got a problem with drones, or you know, my boss tells me we've got a, a problem with drones, mm-hmm. and they come to you, can you kind of walk us through the process of deciding, does that problem exist, and figuring out what kind of layered, I guess, and I'm saying layered solution, mm-hmm. would help that client out? What, you know, what happens when I walk into your doors and say, I got a problem? Yeah, so I'll give you an example of a prison system that uh, walked in our doors uh, figuratively and said, we think we have a problem. And it's really fascinating. Uh, all right, I, I, lo- I love the interconnections of how, how everything just interconnects. So prison system come in, they say, hey, we think we have a problem. We, uh, we vis- have visual reporting. We did this year-long study, and we had visual reporting of drones that are flying, uh, that are seen flying near our prisons. At the same time as that, we see that correlated with an increase in violence at the prison, in which we correlate to an increase in contraband, which create, uh, increases significantly operating costs at these prisons. So we really need to, fi- we need to have a method to get quantitative data on the actual what's happening here, because simply visually seeing drones and occasionally seeing packages in the prison yard isn't enough. So we said, okay, so we'll install our system at a handful of your prisons, and we'll do a study. And during that study, we found that every single day that uh, our system was there, every single day, we saw at least one drone incursion, drone flying over the prison yard and either collecting data or delivering contraband across these prisons. And in doing so, that allowed them to not only know that there's a drone there, but also to know where people are flying drones from, how they're operating them. And in one case, we were able to show them that it was actually the farmer's next door drone that was flying. In that case, we can now ignore that drone. We now know that farmer was, auth- uh, was authorized and is not delivering drugs into the prison or weapons or other contraband. 
but in other cases we're able to show this same drone shows up at this one prison then shows up at this other prison and now we can show the correlation that this is not just somebody you know dropping off baseball cards for their friend at the uh, but this is actually a drone a, a whole network that's operating going from prison to prison dropping off uh, drugs weapons pornography and in uh, one case uh, it was a uh, Oh, you got to remember, what's the, the balding for people who are balding? Uh, I cream. should know the answer to that. Rogaine. <laughs> Rogaine, yes. For the Rogaine. listeners, no, I do not use that. <laughs> okay. Well, this is not a Rogaine commercial. Okay. <laughs> but but uh, in one case, Rogaine uh, was dropped off because that is what cha- the dynamics changes drones. And this is the beautiful part about drones is they completely upend economies. And this has been seen in the prison economy where previously, if you wanted contraband and you had to del- smuggle in small pieces of contraband individually through either uh, orifices or through paying off guards, which is very expensive. Now the whole entire prison economy is flipped on its head because you can bring in two kilos every single drone flight for the cost of a few hundred dollars and unfortunately a kid from the neighborhood completely upends that which of course then increases violence and in the case uh, in our case when we were installing the system uh, installing the system two separate stabbings occurred which both resulted uh, in airlifts out which cost about half a million dollars they said within the first week of cost for the airlift the hospital bills the uh, shutting down overtime just from those two incidents occurring both of which they believe was caused by contraband smuggled in via drone i for one am stunned by the magnitude of that problem i you know i was thinking maybe it was one drone a month i i had no idea it was one drone a day well and that's the key part about quantifying right yeah because they were seeing about one drone a month and they said hmm if we're seeing one drone a month there probably is more let me ask you this you said something which I, I want to maybe drill a little bit more into yeah. regarding the capabilities of your system. To me, you said something that indicated you can take a signature of a drone that you see in one place and compare that signature against drones that you may see in another place and then see if there's a correlation. What does that signature consist of? I mean, is it you are identifying the exact same drone or you're seeing a signature of a drone flying the same way and you're it's an operational signature yeah so it's a, so one of the key things or the the big thing is it's there's systems out there they'll go beep beep and tell you there's a drone around we think that's not enough we our clients demand not just know there's a drone around but to be able to do a forensic threat assessment on that drone to really understand, is this drone a threat? So I'll give you an example. Yeah. And I'll answer your question. So we installed their system at a stadium. And the day before a big, big game where there was uh, high tension and suspect that there might be a threat, there was a, uh, we, the system went uh, gave an alert and we saw a drone launch from an apartment complex near the stadium. Launch, fly towards the stadium, do a loop, turn around and land back where the pilot was. We were able to see where the pilot was. We were able to see where it was launched from. We were able to track the drone as it flew. We then were able to record that that signature, that fingerprint of that, of that drone, of the controller, of the whole package. Then we're able to see during the game day when that drone flies, we're able to know 
that drone, we know who who's flying it. We know as soon as that drone turns on, we don't need to necessarily send out law enforcement immediately. We can wait because we can see if that drone does the exact same thing, that person completely oblivious that it's game day, just simply launching it, doing a loop-de-loop, and, and landing it, which allows us to not have to, again, send out law enforcement resources, overreact and panic, but know that drone is not authorized. It's not supposed to be doing that, but it's not necessarily somebody that's, uh, that's going to cause us immediate risk and harm. On the flip side, of course, with uh, in other scenarios where you want to be able to see why is this same drone flying near this piece of critical infrastructure? Why does this drone keep coming back? That is a risk. But also, maybe you have, for example, at an airport where they have a drone that they purchased that's authorized to fly there. So now you can whitelist that. So now you don't have to receive an alert every time that drone's turned on. So you know if you do receive an alert, that drone that there is a drone that's unauthorized, that's not supposed to be there, and you can trust the alert. It's important to have that fidelity in every single time the alarm goes off. Luke, in the last couple minutes we have left, I want to touch two subjects that we've kind of been dancing around for the last 30 minutes or so. But I know that there are topics that you have a great deal of interest in. By the time this podcast gets put on SoundCloud and gets distributed, I think that the remote ID NPRM is going to be published by the FAA. That is a topic that I know you are personally passionate about. You've gone to Washington. You've talked to, I believe it was OMB on this. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, what do you hope is in that remote ID NPRM? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. So for the last uh, well over a year, uh, we have worked with many great companies uh, to develop the remote ID standard for ASTM International. And that remote ID standard takes a lot of things into account, uh, including security. And what we really hope that uh, that is in the rule is a common sense approach to security requirements, where there's uh, unfortunately it's a lot there's a lot of uh there's a lot of demand for maybe we don't need any security uh in any of them it's just simply trust based off who somebody says they are or everybody has the utmost security where we believe that there is a approach where you have general remote id that's required across the board that's easy to incorporate in drones that's low cost to no cost to the users that's available and required broadly. And then where you have sensitive environments, sensitive threats, or sensitive operations, you require secure remote ID, which is a remote ID message that you can authenticate and you can ensure that it's actually coming from who it says it's coming from. And by having that distribution and having those set different, those general remote ID that's broad and then very specific requirements for secure remote ID, we can ensure that remote ID is immediately adopted, doesn't take a three to five year curve, which ultimately is disadvantageous to the commercial drone industry and prevents us from capitalizing on the billions of dollars of opportunity as a society. Not only that, but continues to stagnate just the opportunity that drones immediately offer to make our lives better and safer and more enjoyable. You've been in the really enviable position of getting the opportunity to watch ASTM and the FAA collaborate on this remote ID set of standards. 
And I am just wondering if you're looking into your crystal ball and do you think the remote ID NPRM is going to look a lot like those ASTM standards or is the train going to leave the tracks and head to a different destination on the government side? <laughs> I really can't imagine it uh, not following AS, uh, the ASTM standard or to some degree of that, maybe some modifications of that. The ASTM standard in a lot of really smart people around the table uh, that we that really put a just a year of our lives into over a year of our lives into to ensure that it is common sense that it is applicable that it satisfies both the needs of the national security side of government as well as the aviation side general aviation and also drone manufacturers and users and hobbyists and the commercial drone industry so it's not a perfect standard we're we're actually launching uh, two point remote ID 2.0 uh, very soon. Hopefully that's not a secret. Uh, <laughs> but if it, it is, <laughs> we'll edit this out, or okay. <laughs> or we'll delay it until it's no longer a secret. Luke, don't worry. Perfect. <laughs> but and but with that, uh, there's been a lot, just a lot of uh, sweat put into it, and we're really excited to uh, to see it come to life. And we've already done public demonstrations. Uh, with the ASTM remote ID standard, uh, with actually DJI Incorporated uh, for secure remote ID uh, into one of their drones and demonstrated the capability to have secure remote ID where you don't have to trust their servers, but it's actually it's a secure remote identification from White Fox. So you can have a U.S.-based company that's securely identifying it, but you can have any number of drones be able to use secure remote ID instantly and immediately have that credibility and trust so that you can be a government agency and use a drone that's highly affordable, extremely powerful, but still be able to have the trust of a U.S.-based company. And maybe in a couple of weeks, we'll know what that NPRM looks like because it'll be out on the streets. And <laughs> exactly. I, do, I do have a very um, big bet with one of my colleagues as to whether we'll be out in 2019 or not. And the next time we talk, I'll let you know if uh, she took me out to dinner on this. So anyways, <laughs> last, last thing that I want to talk to you about, Luke. Yes. And that is the new generation of drones that are out there that rely on vision-based systems, whether they're LIDAR or optical, that don't need GPS, that don't need any kind of command leak, and can autonomously navigate themselves. Clearly, that is a different counter-UAS challenge. Mm -hmm. Is that type of challenge, and by the way, you know these systems can fly nap of the earth, a foot or two mm -hmm. off the ground. Yep. Clearly, that changes the counter-UAS imperative, but do we have things out there that can stop those kind of systems right now? Yes, we absolutely do. Uh, the, the reality is, is while we're starting to see those on the, the bleeding edge and we see those in some degrees, the, I think the best way to look at it is there's a, a wide variety of counter drone solutions that are available depending on the threat. The threat of a, of a drone that's flying uh, completely visually, completely autonomously doesn't really exist today. And so those solutions are reserved for uh, more specialized customers, I'll say. When we look at the, wi the wide variety of threats, there's largely those clueless and careless operators who are flying their drones around 
and just enjoying the good scenery and putting their drones in places where they shouldn't be. And that's what's right now presenting the biggest threat. And that's what we need to get a handle on today as we look into the future. I can tell you there's already a lot of uh, really interesting solutions to help counter uh, more sophisticated uh, and complex uh, drone operations, but that's years in the future until we see those as being an, a considerable threat. Luke, this has really been an incredible conversation. I can't thank you enough for spending time with us on Thinking Through Autonomy, and I just can't wait to see how you beat 2019 and 2020. So congratulations to you and the fine team you built, and take the new year off. Take a little <laughs> break. <laughs> we'll see you again in 2020. I really appreciate that. And thank you so much, Ken, for uh, having White Fox Defense on your show. I, uh, I just really appreciate the time. And uh, thank you so much for the thoughtful questions. 